<laughs> so I said, <laughs> can you make a jack that takes things down? What? He said that's not <laughs> well, that was his reaction. He said it's not um, possible. Um, no. I mean, the floor, the is, floor there. is there. So it, I was just, you know, I just think science comes so long. We can, can microwave jack- pizzas. Why can't we jack downwards? Can your jack raise a car? Or are you lowering the earth? What's the universal constant? Uh, Welcome <laughs> to Big Dumb Cast, where we ask the big dumb questions, uh, and also talk about meaningless shit, nerdy news, geeky gossip, things that don't really matter. I'm Chris. I'm Matthew. And I'm Chris. And uh, this week, we're pretty excited, because a show we like, a show we like that has, for the most part, been pretty consistently brilliant it's since it began. It's off. But well, in terms of like its production schedule, but when it's oh, yeah, around, yeah. it's great. Yeah, and even when it has been not as good as its high point, it's mm. still been pretty damn great. Certainly better than ninety nine percent of other genre comedy. Exacto mundo uh, returns. If you're listening to this on the release that it was on television yesterday night, but if not, you can go watch it on UK TV Play. Red Dwarf has returned. Yay! The greatest sci-fi show on British television. End of discussion. Yep. So that's all uh, there is to say about that's that. All there is to say um, about that. Um, and yeah, we have watched Twentica, the first episode of series eleven slash ten slash twelve slash whichever one it technically is. The one that they're calling series eleven because by jingo, why not? <laughs> and uh, yeah, let's, 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 let's. What we're gonna do is we're gonna have a quick chat about our favorite Red Dwarf episodes and stuff. We're gonna. Uh, just wax lyrical about boys from the dwarf. Yeah. Um, and we're also later on going to revisit our favourite new item. Matt and Chris, two lifelong Doctor <laughs> Who fans, reluctantly answer Doctor Who questions. I can't get it down to an acronym. I just can't. There's no need. I think it's I've quite tried beautiful. It. I've tried it on the show notes, and it and it and it, and it, <laughs> it's just a it abbreviates. <laughs> it abbreviates to Tilladrufusan ampersand Muradik. I like the emphasis on the ampersands. There's an ampersand in there. It works. Um, it deserves to be read out. Yeah. Um, so we'll be doing that. If you've ever, if you, if you want to get in touch, by the way, I want to say at the top end, let's see what happens. Bigdamncontact at gmail.com is big the email address. Bigdamncontact at gmail.com. We're also Bigdamcast on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, Bigdamblog on Tumblr. And, um, well, your mum's got our numbers, so you can give us a ring that yeah, way. Yeah, give us a bell. Uh, so, yes. yes. Uh, first off, Red Dwarf, you, yes. sir. Yes. When you were a boy. When I was a boy? When didst thou find out about Red Dwarf? Um, I don't know. I always, I just always remember. It's like Doctor Who in in, in similar sense that I always remember having known and watched Red Dwarf. It was a constant, sir. Now, I, so thingy. Uh, so when did season six air? So I know that it aired in nineteen eighty eight, the first series, which is yes. the year I was born. And I don't remember having watched it. And I, I think I might have watched one of season six on transmission mm-hmm. back in 93, but I would have only been five, so I might not have. <clears throat> I watched series seven and eight on transmission mm-hmm. because I'd seen bits. It was repeated pretty often. Yeah, that was 97 and 98 and BBC Two. Yeah. Was when it so I definitely out, yeah. watched those on transmission. And I'd had little bits on VHS and also I, I had the Smegups tape. Oh, which yes. I watched religiously. Yes, and the only I, Red Dwarf um, to get a UMD release as well. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I'll have to track that down. For my PlayStation Portable. The cutting edge of handheld consoles. Um, 
And yeah, it was repeated quite a lot. So I, I feel like I spent a lot of Saturday nights watching it with, I'm not sure if my mum was that into it, but certainly my dad. We watched a fair bit of it. I remember, def- I was definitely watching it when I was in primary school anyway. So, um, for me, it was, um, it was, it was one night when I was, it's one of my earliest memories. I was a little nippy and I couldn't sleep at my dad's house. Um, not because there was like, you know, they sort of kept piranhas in the bed sheets or anything like that. I just mean, I couldn't sleep that particular night. <laughs> it's like a regime. You're not allowed to sleep here. They were having all the asbestos pulled out. Yeah. <laughs> and reinserted. Oh! oh! Uh, I was about five. Dirty that. And uh, I, I couldn't sleep. And I went downstairs and I remember seeing this big, greasy, beigey, brownie alien thing hmm. with this thing sticking out of its mouth and slapping someone in the forehead and being like, yeah, I'm going to go back to bed. But my dad had already caught me. He was like, you okay? I was like, yeah, I can't sleep. So he said, oh, I said, is this, is this a scary movie? And he went, no, 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 it's silly. Come here, it'll be all right. So he sat me down and we had a cuddle and obviously tried to help me get back to sleep as I sat there. Not realising till a few years later that I was watching Polymorph <laughs> and, um, from Series 3. It's really very silly. So I think I must have obviously asked about it enough that he eventually was like, oh, go on, we'll watch some Red Dwarf. And yeah, it went from there. And through my teens, the DVDs were coming out. I had some of the videotapes, but mm. the DVDs were coming out through my teens. Like from like 2002 onwards, I think they released two a year. Yeah, because yeah. 2006, 2007 was when Series 7, Series 8 made it to DVD. Mm-hmm. And it was it was, it was was an appointment experience. The moment they were out, I would hit the Safeway, which then became the Morrisons, <laughs> near school in the afternoon on the way home with saved up pocket money and buy that season of Red Dwarf and yeah. binge watch it that evening. Um, so Red Dwarf has always been something that's been quite important to me in that way. It was a series of videotapes I grew up that kind of introduced me to... Comedy being different before that, comedy was either two silly people in front of a curtain saying something, or it was a bunch of people in a house or in a shop saying <laughs> daft things to each other. Red Dwarf made me realise comedy can be anywhere. Oh yeah, it can and be set be anywhere. in any time period with any sort of like genre setting. So I I I adore it for that and its ways. Um, so the fact that it's around again is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we, we lost it in '98. Yeah. Series eight ended on a so, sort of cliffhanger, which they love doing. Cause they did the same thing with series six when he went away for a little bit, mm, and series seven. Um, series seven teases series eight. Yeah, with, with the nanobots, um, the nanites rebuilding Red Dwarf. Yeah, um, and Holly coming back. Um, it left then nothing. Mm-hmm. Then 2009, we got the Dave special Back to Earth three parter. Um, telling a story of nine years later and, and what they've been up to and what's going on. And that's a one-off and it exists on its own kind of, but it got enough viewers. If I remember correctly, I think 6 million was the peak viewers it, during it that pretty well. weekend. It pretty well. Yeah. Which is great for the channel that Dave is like a smaller channel on free viewing and cable. Mm-hmm. So they were given a green light cast schedules, um, sort of dictated how things would be. And we eventually got a full series, series 10, in 2012. And now we've got 11 and 12 already shot. 11 is already up. First episode, Twentica. Let's let's just dip into this quickly. We don't want to say too much because it's worth watching yourself. But, oh God, you said, you summed yeah. it up. You said this feels like sort of series four, series five. Yeah. Like they're back in that mid-90s Which is like sci-fi concepts. Probably my favourite period of Red Dwarf. 
Uh, I I was reading. I was just having a look on to see what the other reaction online had been, and it, um, it Dana Den of Geek made a really interesting point, and it feels like the shift. It felt what starting this felt like the massive shift from series two to series three in setting that you had from series two to series uh, from series ten to series eleven. Yeah, because series ten was very much series one and two. Red Dwarf based. Yeah. There's 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 sci-fi concepts and there's some location yeah. shooting, but it's it's very confined to this bunk room, this deck, yeah. this deck area, exactly. this corridor. Uh, it's you guys reacting to each other. And a lot of the adventures are based on stuff they're doing amongst each other within the confines. Whereas this episode, they're out on Starbug. Yeah, they're having space adventures. They're in a desert. They're in a sort of prohibition-style American city. Why? I'm not going to tell you. Oh yes, but um, <laughs> some. The only thing missing is a mustache on Crichton. That's oh, the only yeah, thing yeah. missing as far as I'm concerned. Just a little pencil mustache. I love it when they met, when they put Crichton in clothes. It's <laughs> always really fun. We get a time travel um, hostage situation. We yeah. get a alternate Earth history. We get a really nice twist on the whole prohibition, like counterfeiting and 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 um, racketeering thing, like and some hackneyed old cliches. Yes, <laughs> which get pointed out and dissected as they're happening, yeah. which is amazing. And Kevin Eldon, I only realised the yeah. last scene that Kevin Eldon was the he's a nice was the thing. villain, like because yeah. he's under a lot of sort of mechanical bits. Because simulants are back, which because there are simulants in series ten in in the last episode as well. They're simulants too. Yeah, uh, so I like the fact that we're seeing. Again, they're from sort of series four, five, six. Yeah. Like, I think we meet our first simulant. I might be wrong. I think we meet our first simulant in Justice. It's the one that they um, they defrost. Uh, yeah, it's either, yes, either going to be yeah. like a, a crew member or a oh, prisoner. Yeah, and it's the and it's prisoner, and it's a psychotic simulant. Um, um, so I like the fact that they're continuing the tradition of the villains. I do wonder if we're going to get some more Gelf. Maybe. At some point, too. I know we've got a cyborg surgeon in an upcoming episode who does something pretty dark to Lister. Oh, well, that's part of the course, then. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, there's always, like, an episode here and there that is really, really bleak or really uncomfortable. I mean, conceptually, the show's pretty bleak. Yeah, but we were anyway. talking about this before, weren't yeah, we? Like, um, there will never be a happy ending to this show. No. Unless somehow they miraculously travel back in time to Earth to the period that Rimmer and Lister lived in when the show began. Which they've had... Sort of the ability to do, but they've never been able to do. Yeah, they've never been able to stay, or they've had to be there because it's to correct something that's yeah. going to destroy everything, or you know, or it's not real, or it's a hallucination, or it's a um, you know, it's they never get the happy ending. No, um, which I think is the overall message of the show. It's shit happens most of the time. It's out of your control. Yeah. The important thing is to stay sane, keep yourself entertained, and try not to be a dick to other people. That's basically the message of Red Dwarf. Shit happens, get over it. Because <laughs> Lister's mission Pretty is... Much. Lister's mission, if you can call it that, there is no hope. He may never get back to Earth. No. He may never, um, like, find Kachansky again, based on where we're up to now in the story. He may never, like, find anyone else who he can sort of spend time with, or shag, or get to know, or, like, he's, he's always going to be him, the sort of projected, um, semi-electronic, uh, recreation of the dickhead he used to share a bunk with. <laughs> a hyper-evolved species that came from his cat who, Though seemingly loyal to a point, will abandon you if like his wardrobe is in danger. Oh, yeah. 
and a mechanoid oh, yeah. who who is for the most part the only kind of voice of reason on Red Dwarf, and who still bonkers, has like yeah. yeah, who still has like behavioral like tics and psychotic tendencies from time to time. Oh, I love it. So yeah. instead of instead of trying to explain what it is, if you know what Red Dwarf is. Stick around. If you don't, you're going to be so baffled, but we hope this might be enough to make you go, oh, I'll check that out. Because the first eight seasons of Red Dwarf, or the first six seasons, then half-extended remastered versions of Series 7, some Series 7 from TV, and then all of Series 8 are on Netflix. Yeah. Back to Earth is currently on, I think, Back to Earth is currently on UK TV Play. I think it said Series 9, didn't it, on the thing Yeah, before. I think so, yeah. Because um, yeah, it didn't have 7 and 8, and you were like, damn it. No, I, no, it didn't oh, no, that was no, it. it didn't have it 10. It didn't have 10. Didn't uh, have we 10. didn't have 10, but 10's out there. Basically, yeah. you've got years worth of it to watch. It's a British comedy show, so it's six episodes per season, apart from a couple where it's eight, and it's very, it's very, it's very bingeable. It's very bingeable. Mm. Um, we thought, as you've been on a bit of a Red Dwarf kick lately, you've been rewatching a bunch. I've, I've over the last month or so, I've rewatched all the first six series <laughs> and Back to Earth, which I hadn't seen before, and I've managed to get a couple of episodes in from season ten as well, but I've not had enough time to watch it all. Well, after watching Twentica today, which we highly recommend, I think yeah. we'd say like it's a nice kick off to the series. It feels very familiar, but everything looks shiny and new, and yes. I, I can't wait to see where they go with it. Um, we thought we would. Separately, compile a list of our top five favourite Red Dwarf episodes. And as we go through them now, five down to one, one at a time, we're going to see if we match up on any of them. Because there are some episodes of Red Dwarf that are sort of considered definitively like the best ones. Oh yeah. By a lot of people. Um, And I'm sure they'll crop up in in both, if not just one of our lists. Yeah, they'll definitely, at least one of them (laughs) will definitely crop up in mine because we're going to talk about it in a minute. But some of them are personal preferences. So, without yeah. further a smegging do, sir. Yeah. Um, what's your number five? It is Gunmen of the Apocalypse. Oh shit! Yeah, series six. Any award-winning episode? Yeah, of Gunmen I, of the Apocalypse. I always forget that. It they won an point, award for this episode. At this point, the states had cottoned on, hadn't they? It was yeah, being broadcast yeah, yeah. on something. They, they tried to make a US version, and twice. as we know, that always works out, <laughs> and it failed miserably. Both times. Grace Point, Grace Point, anyone? Is it? No. The IT crowd, anyone? Is it actually available? Can you get the you US ca- pilot uh, anywhere? No, I think it's one of those things that does the rounds at conventions, much like the Buffy the Vampire Slayer pilot episode. Yeah. They like, keep circulating you, the you, tapes. You can get away with buying released. it as long as you don't tell anyone who works within copywriting <laughs> that you've got it. Um, yeah, the pilot is out there. There is footage from it on one of the DVD box sets of Red Dwarf, where yeah. they talk about it. There's like a little featurette on the US pilot but it makes the mistake of a lot of shows when they try and make a US version which is the first mistake is they just sort of try and do carbon copy but change bits bits of things because they think that it would make more sense to US audiences which makes it sound like they think US audiences are Mm -hmm. dumb and can't interpret things from other places and then they also always bring across one cast member usually the goofiest or comic reliefiest of all the characters to play the same character they did it with IT Crowd. The main guy from earlier Community is uh, Roy in the IT Crowd US pilot. But Richard Ayoade is Moss. Okay. And it just doesn't work. Is, is, is he being American Moss? No, he's British Moss still. That's weird. Which is why it was odd when Robert Llewellyn is Crichton in the Red Dwarf US pilot. Doing a Canadian accent. Doing a Canadian accent. So he can still be slightly different. Yeah. But also it's 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 sort of a weird 
thing because Crichton isn't in the show when it starts, so they're yeah. obviously tweaking things and changing things around. Although, also this uh, Hinton Batil, or Batil, I can never pronounce his name. Hinton Battle is Cat. Yeah. Um, I was Cat in the original version. They did, they did another reshoot with a different. Really? Yeah. I did not know that part. Yeah. I just knew when I saw he was cast, oh, I was like, oh my god, that makes sense. Because I know, I know him primarily from Buffy was more feeling. Yeah. As yeah. sweet he's a musical as the big bad. Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a stage guy, yeah. But the moment I, I heard that he was cat, I was like, okay, let's see what his actual well, I mean, face looks like. And now let's imagine that on the suits he was wearing in the Buffy musical. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Well, Danny John Jules is a, is a, is a musical dancer. God damn, guy. yes, yeah, he is. So, you know. That's a, do, you know, do you know what two of his earliest movie credits are? I, I know he's in Labyrinth. He's in Labyrinth. He's, 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 he's one, the voice of a couple of the fire, the fireies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is really obvious. When you, when you know that, watch that sequence. It's the most pointless sequence in Labyrinth. It but does not awesome. need to be there. The it, puppet work is astonishing. The puppet work's amazing. The blue screen work, not so much. Well, well, yeah. But it's a really fun looking scene. You can tell it's one of those that are like, we don't know where else to do something like this. Well, We're going to do, do it. it here. But listen out, because it's Tally John Jules. And the other one... Is in Little Shop of Horrors. Yes, he's in. He's, he's in the, the guy on the end yeah, the stop, yeah. um, of, the, of the dudes. Uh, in fact, there's a puppeteer as well called Mac who's in that scene. Who's on the end oh, of that okay. robot? Right. Right. Um, who nice. is also was also like the primary controller of Michelangelo's head in the TMNT first movie. Um, so yeah, bit of tangent there. But he's also in Blade Two. Yes, he is. Not Mac. Sorry, Sorry. John Jules. Then again, I, I suspect that Guillermo del Toro might be in Red Dwarf a little bit. I might. I I, I can go. Um, yeah. So America would have been aware of it, and I guess. It was obviously known enough that the Emmys considered Gunman of the Apocalypse, and then it, it got won, one. Yeah. It bloody got one. Um, what's, what's the premise for those who may not so, have seen it, and you might want them to watch it? Gunman of the Apocalypse is... So it starts with Lister playing on his AR machine and being called out of... Um, a noir. Pulled, pulled out <laughs> yeah. of a noir detective game that he's using to sleep with the femme fatale <laughs> by, by Crichton, because they've come across a, a rogue simulant ship. Mm-hmm. Rogue simulants being... Um, <laughs> Uh, cyborgs so, that run cy- the galaxy, cyborg yeah. humans like sort of cybermen borgy kind of people There's who no... want to basically d- destroy human existence and human life because it sickens them there are no aliens uh, in per se in red dwarfs the the galaxy is is uh, populated by rogue simulants and, yeah. and gelfs it, it's all stuff that's forms. come from earth yeah. essentially over over millennia uh, over, over thousands of millions of years yeah. including simulants which are basically humanoids who are more machine than human yeah. and everything human disgusts them so these guys come in to, to take them down basically but they yeah. give them a fighting chance yeah so because they because they're on the crew are on starbug at this point and they're just a little transport ship and they've got no weapons the uh, the simulants give them laser cannons and say all right now you might make good sport let's have a let's have a fight strangely enough the dwarfers are lucky enough to take them out but not before the simulants infect their computer system mm. with the apocalypse virus which is going to destroy the navcom and crash them into a nearby moon. Crichton plugs himself into the computer, tries to make a computer antidote, but he's losing. So, the dwarfers... There's one clue to them is watch my dreams and yeah. see how he's doing. Yeah, so they plug him in and see that he's he's created this sort of western <laughs> reality where he's a drunken sheriff and the apocalypse boys are going to come in and, t- and take over the town and destroy everything. Um, so they plug it in, into the AR machine, <laughs> dial up a western game, Pop themselves in to try and help him out. <laughs> so we get Dan McGrew, yeah. Knife Man. Dan McGrew, Knife Man. Um, the Riviera Kid. No, there's Brett, Brett Riverboat's Knife, knife oh, Man. Brett Riverboat's Knife Man. Uh, Dan McGrew's, McGrew's Bearfish Fighter. Bearfish Fighter, yeah. And the cat becomes a Riviera Kid. Dangerous it's... Dan McGrew. <laughs> the, the Riviera Kid. It's, it's just so great. Good. It's just really good fun. 
So what you're telling um, me is it's a story about a bunch of space people yeah. fighting an alien virus, yeah. but for some reason we're watching a bunch of dudes in a western. Yeah. Why is Red Dwarf so great? That's why Red Dwarf's That's so great. That's why it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> like, any other, any other show would have sort of shown that through, like, data stuff and this, that, the other. And these guys went, no, screw yeah. it. We're going to go into a western town. It's got, and and even before you get to the Western stuff, there's so many great gags at the start. The, the Vindaluvian Empire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the entire sequence, like with the, the just upside down amazing. mouths with an eye stuck on the chin. Oh, God. There's a great outtake as well. I am Tarka Doll. Humans. There. Yeah. We despise humans. <laughs> Isn't that right, Bindi Badgie? Gum, 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 gum. And they just do that weird thing with his lips. And it just looks so funky. It's and they brilliant. really get away with it. Like, oh. it could have worked. It's so good. The Vindaluvian Empire is pledged to exterminate them all. His lip just goes flop. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so odd. It's just, it's, and yet there's just, there's no such thing as a cheap laugh. No. And Red Dwarf, the writers really believe that. Yeah. Because they do not care how they get you to laugh. They will get you to laugh. <laughs> um, the sequence in the uh, noir detective AR game at the start. <laughs> so he just confesses to her. It's like, I'm going, yeah, I'm supposed to wait. I've played this game before. I'm supposed to end up with the goody two shoes, like the witness over there. But you just drive me crazy. And the, um, the, the character of the game is just sort of like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. She's not jailbait. She's 17. The ball girl from the Wimbledon game. Um, <laughs> Which is a gag that would not land well in no, America, no, no, no. actually. Not work. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised it got the Emmy. This is very un-Christian. Um, so, yeah. I actually thought it was totally Christian. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into religion in later episodes. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Western stuff's just really fun. Um, there's a great little bar brawl. Just everyone getting to ham it up in costumes. Uh, Danny John Jules doing his bizarre Mexican accent. What? Remember being sick Three shots of gulping whiskey, man. And these are only half hour episodes. They pack a lot of laughs and a lot of concept in so half hour episodes. And the best part is, even after it's done, even after the virus is defeated with the Dove program and all this, and they come mm-hmm. back, the last shot of the episode is them in the ship, everything's fine, and Starbuck rides off into the sunset. With a Western v- version do, of do, the Red Bull It's just like, oh, this is so good. Which they try and do as much as they, I mean, I don't know. Theme, theme alterations. Theme alterations, so, yeah. they try and do as much as they can. Um, although that, that theme tune is iconic at this point. Um, they do try and change it up as when they can. <laughs> um, it's, I, yeah, I can see why that's in your five. It is, it is a staple. Yeah. It is a staple. If you want to introduce someone to the to the more high concept era of Red, Red Dwarf that season three to six embody, that's your go to episode because it is just so much fun. It's consistently funny. You get a little peek at everyone's character. Everyone gets a little bit of character showcase mm. in them. <laughs> um, it's just great TV. It was that was my number five, but I had a suspicion it'd be yours. So okay. I thought I'd give another episode a chance. So I bumped it to my number six. My got? number five is series two's Queeg. Oh, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, great. Queeg's fantastic. There are not many Holly episodes. No, no, um, Holly's not even in season six. Yeah, Holly, Holly's not in series six or or series seven. Bar a sneaky cameo, and it hasn't been in it since series eight. No, um, this is back with the Norman Lovett version of Holly. Um, and it's essentially they're sick of his, his shit basically, and they're yeah. gonna he's gonna be replaced by a superior computer. 
Enter, is it the Queeg 500 or the Queeg 5000? Yeah, he's like, he's the, um, I'm looking it up now, but he's the sort of the military computer <laughs> version of Holly. Yeah. Um, it's Queeg 500, yeah. Queeg 500, um, yeah. <laughs> and he starts, yeah, he starts making, putting him for boot camp, doesn't he? Pretty yeah. Much. Well, Holly gets sort of um, like kicked out for a while and is just roving about on this monitor on like a, on a wheeled gurney. He's just sort of going on a little hiking trip round the, the ship because it's got nothing, he's got nothing else to just whistling. I think he's even got like a flat cap on and a little sort of broom and stuff. It's just, it's such an interesting idea that we've been, we, we, we were introduced in episode one to Holly, the ship's computer, who essentially is the navigator, the pilot, and the problem solver. If there's ever anything that needs doing, maintenance or otherwise, Holly's the one who's meant to do it. However, the Holly we meet very early on in episode one, it seems to be pretty competent. Mm. We don't see much of him until Dave's woken from stasis and the series begins properly. At that point, he seems to be on top of it, but a bit dry and a bit sarcastic. By the middle of series two, by the time we get to Queeg, you realise Holly's not great. Three million years in deep space has sort of meant this computer has yeah. become a bit thicker and a bit more um, sort of gullible and just dense. And so to suddenly have an episode where it's like, yeah, this makes no sense. Uh, you're all going to die if this computer's in charge. Here's a new one. It's such a really cool concept. Plus the performance of Queek is really, really good. The whole showdown is really great. And the fight to the death, the idea that like one of them will be deleted and erased forever. Mm. Spoiler alert, it turns out to be pointless. Holly was Queeg the entire time. <laughs> and it was pretty much because he was bored and wanted to prove that they needed to stop like yeah. not it, taking him for granted. He wanted to prove his worth to the crew. Yeah. <laughs> Which he doesn't need to because he's just the ship's computer. But it, 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 it's a perfect summation of, of the main relationship in the show as well. Because as we find out later, the only reason Rimmer is the hologram that Holly brought back. I think we found out before that, don't we, end of series one, but then they took... I think, I think it's the, so they, the start of series one. It's the, it's the episode where... Because they, they do touch on it in series eight as well, when they talk about the crew being resurrected and everything. Yeah. Holly chose Rimmer because Rimmer drove Lister nuts. And it was the only way he could guarantee Lister would stay sane. Yeah. During everything. Yeah. Like, if you give him, you know, you give him a love interest, you give him, like, Kachansky, things are going to go, like... A different way based on how their relationship pans out. You give him like it's gonna go someone he's never met, then they're not really going to get on. It's going to go bad as well with Kuchansky or someone because they can't have any kind of physical relationship. Yeah. Whereas if you give him someone he absolutely despises yet can't punch in the face because his fist will go through him, then you've pretty much given him a reason to stay sane and alert at all times. And Queeg was a nice way to kind of show that Holly, though demented, does kind of know what he's doing. Mm. So I, I, I had to give Queeg a shout. What, sir, is your number three? My number four is from season five. Oh, mince. It's episode six. Oh. Back to reality. Oh, tip biscuits. Oh. How good is back to reality? It's quite good. How good um, is back to reality? That's another, that's, uh, that is another one that pops up as a lot of people's favourite episode. Yeah. It's, it's, again, it's because it uses the great thing that those later seasons do. I say latest, it's like the middle seasons now, really. It's sort of like the 90s run, where where it it sort of becomes less sitcom, more sci-fi sitcom. Is they take, um, they take the characters out of the the setting that you got used to them in, and then use that to inform their character. Mm -hmm. So in this, so what happens is, they find an ocean planet, 
and an, ab- an abandoned ship, and they get attacked by a giant squid. They're like, ah! After finding a load of corpses, yeah. it looks like all committed suicide. So it seems like this squid has got some way of making its victims commit suicide. Mm. Um, like even I, a haddock. Yes. <laughs> if a haddock has <laughs> killed, <laughs> killed itself. Um, <laughs> again, Red Dwarf's the best. Uh, <laughs> it's very Douglas Adams at times, isn't it? Is it? Um, yeah, there's a lot of Douglas Adams we're going to have to talk about Hitchhikers at some point in the future. Um, Let me rewatch but, the TV show and we'll do it. I need to read me the books. I listened to the radio version not too long ago, actually. Yeah, so it'd be nice to, it'd be nice to, I, I, yeah, let's rewatch the TV version and I need to get my hands on the film to give that one got more go oh, over. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. I mean, all that talent, uh, not a great result. Oh, um, <laughs> unlike Red Dwarf, Timothy yes. Spall! Yes, Timothy Spall, a guest appearance. Because they um, all, they all die, air quotes, and wake up in a, a, a virtual reality arcade. Yeah. From their session in the game Red Dwarf, the role-play game Red Dwarf. Which they've been in for four years? Four years. And the technician, played by Timothy Spall, comes in and he's like, how did you only manage 4%? And mm-hmm. he sort of tips them off to things they should have done. They got a really bad score. And suddenly, like you say, we've got to know them over the course of, like, five years. Yeah. We're now told that all those characters aren't real. Nope. It was all fake. We see other people go into the game and be those characters. To be those characters, and they're much more like dashing and suave yeah. versions. It's hey, almost like, It's almost like the American Shut version up. of the show. Yeah, it's like snogs her as and everyone just stands there in approval. And he's t- and his tenacious <laughs> berating them. He's like, "Well, you didn't get Kachanski, but you're supposed to. You get Kachanski from the Universe later on, and you know, you, you, you know, you start repopulating the human race. It's like the whole point behind the whole game is that Lister is like, he feels like a completely useless sack of crap, and then by the end, you find out that he is essentially God. He's he, Lister, the he's ultimate stuck. atheist, kickstarts the second big bang yeah, and becomes, becomes, becomes God. And Rimmer, Rimmer's cover, Rimmer's, Rimmer's, a, a, Rimmer's a sleeper agent. Yeah, and he's, his cover is to be a, is to be a dickhead. But and then played him straight the whole time. And then early in the story, he finds out he's not and switches. But yep. you've been like, you've been a dick at the whole time. Oh. <laughs> so they find themselves in this sort of dystopian future where everything's run by fascists. <laughs> Lister finds out he's like some fascist mass murderer. Yeah, he's like the head um, of a company that kills people who, who yeah. like go against the government. Rimmer is his um, homeless, alcoholic... Brother. Uh, half brother, brother. Half-brother. Uh, who's it? It's William Doyle, and uh, he's, he's something else. Doyle, Billy Doyle. Billy Doyle. That's it. Uh, <laughs> Sebastian Doyle is. Listening, Sebastian yeah. Doyle. Um, Crichton is Jink Bullet Cybernautics, which, which turns out to be the traffic, traffic division. As, <laughs> the traffic um, cop with a really cool name, yeah, which makes a, him stupid. And a steel head. <laughs> um, and cat. Oh, poor cat. Poor sweet cat. I'm Dwayne Dibley. <laughs> Man with like no fashion sense, a gigantic overbite, a bowl haircut. He's had all his cool sucked out. Oh, poor bastard! All his cool gone. I think is this. <laughs> this so is Dwayne Dibley Emahawk. No, no, but it, Dwayne Dibley comes from the decooled version of Cat in Polymorph. Um, the idea for him, doesn't it? No, no, it's it's, it's sort of the other way around. Like because uh, Cat gets decooled, but um, in Back to Reality, you find out he's Dwayne Dibley. Or yeah. is he? It's it is an illusion. Um, yes, but it's then, an illusion. But then, emo hawk polymorph two was an excuse to just have Ace Rimmer and Dwayne Dibley back in it because they, oh, okay, they thought yeah. the ideas were funny. They so because in that one, that that polymorph emo hawk sucks out sort of a specific set of emotions just to make them into different people. Yeah. So Rimmer becomes 
like a gung-ho suicide mission like approving Ace River and Cap basically becomes Dwayne Dimbley because he clocks himself in the mirror and says Dwayne Dimbley doesn't he um, let me just check Thermo sandwiches corn festers <laughs> telephone money animal footprint chart and one triple thick condom yeah you never know um, oh god but so this is where the idea comes from this episode that like oh god because obviously that struck a chord certain things strike chords with people Dwayne yeah, Dimbley was definitely yeah. one of them but back to reality was in general because to my knowledge I'm probably wrong there are probably a million versions of this but to my knowledge before that the only thing I can think of where they have just blatantly gone in a story that you know really well not a one-off not one of them and not necessarily like a just a one-off episode yeah oh this was all a dream yeah is Dallas that's the only one I can think of <laughs> No, Do you know what I mean? Where they, after like two seasons where they tried new things and people didn't is... like it. So one of the characters wakes up and the character who died at the start that's in the shower he's like, what is it, honey? And she says, and it's like, oh my God. And then they move on. Yeah. Like those two series never happened. Yeah. Like obviously stories are done episodes, like shows are done yeah, episodes like this, based on that before. This, uh, the this, the, the Lotus Eater Machine trope is kind yes. of, is pretty common in genre fiction. Yeah. Well, this felt, like... this almost felt because it was the last episode of the series like, oh God, is this, yeah, is yeah. this going to turn out to be yeah. true? And no, it isn't. It's a group hallucination brought on by the Despair Squid, which is a great name. And you get you get later on you get brilliant because in the in the uh, reality of their um, waking up in this future dystopia as uh, the, as themselves, but after themselves, <laughs> pardon me. Um, there's they they get in trouble with the police, and there's an yes. br- amazing car chase over a bridge, <laughs> and uh, they're being pursued by helicopters, which you only see from the perspective of Holly. Yeah. Who is watching them hallucinate this on yeah. Starbuck. <laughs> so it's them sitting on crates pretending to drive a car. <laughs> and Crichton brandishing a harpoon gun that he thinks is his pistol. Because um, eventually they're all led to the point where they're like, there's no point going on. We're all wanted. We're all miserable. Yeah. I've only got one bullet. Let's right. Put our heads, let's put together. Our heads together and I'll <laughs> shoot us all through the head. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, it's. It's dark stuff. Yes. I mean, yeah, as we've said, this show gets pretty dark. <laughs> but they're really funny at the yeah, same again, time. Because you get the, you get the laugh, car laugh, chase. Laugh. You see oh, that. So funny. An entire giant elaborate car chase set piece. Mm-hmm. And they get away with it because it's funny seeing them hallucinating that rather than actually seeing <laughs> that's it. How, that's how this works. It's, it's brilliant. It's like the end of Blues Brothers on a budget. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, screw it. We're all just going to sit on some boxes. <laughs> and, you know, this is the kind of show that was filmed. This was filmed in front of a live studio audience at the time. So, and uh, do you know where it was filmed? Uh, for the at most that part, point for I the majority of it's from run. Manchester. I think at that point, I don't know. I think, I think I think production was still up here. It was Manchester for a while. For a while, I know it was definitely. I don't I know it was definitely post and pre were up here during that I think, period as I think well. After season four, they missed Shepperton. Right. But it's such an odd thought that a load of it was filmed yeah, like, yeah, in, in centre centre of Manchester. Yeah, I'm not sure where Chris Byron was based, but I know. But, um, Craig Charles presumably Liverpool based at that point and, and such so it's yeah it's pretty cool I know they rehearsed in London though because one yeah, of the reasons yeah. Norman Lovett quit was because he, he's lived in Edinburgh mm. he'd have to rehearse in London yeah. and shoot in Manchester oh god so that was one of the reasons why he quit and, for uh, a higher wage replaced by Hattie Hayridge who brings who a different kind of energy he's in this it. episode and he's, and he's great um, <laughs> just a moment where she's trying to get through to Crichton and Crichton's the only one who's like starting to Get through to them. Yeah, she, she, to, she broadcasts on a different frequency, yeah, so, so, we, can so he picks her up. Yeah. Um, well, my number four, and bizarrely, it's the sequel to Back to Reality. Okay. My number four is Back to Earth, 
the director's cut. Yeah, see, I haven't seen the director. I've only seen it as three individuals. It's not too different. There's some lines omitted. Yeah. There's a line, if I remember correctly, in episode three or episode two of Back to Earth where Rimmer sort of bitches about things like this being a three-parter. Yes. That's yeah, yeah. removed from the director's cut, for example, because it wouldn't make sense. Um, but the director's cut is essentially the Back to Earth 2009 three-part special edited together as an hour and ten minute movie. And it kind of flows better for it. Yeah, I can imagine that. Because the, the episode breaks feel really weird. Yeah, especially as well with there being no laugh track. Mm. As a film, it feels right. Like, a, as an hour and 15 minute experience, no laugh track sort of makes you go, okay, because we're, just... we're watching essentially a Red Dwarf movie. And so that's something enough. they were trying to get. They were oh, trying to get filming for. Well, all the, task, all the cast got the teeth fixed. Yeah. <laughs> Like, Craig Charles spent, like, a couple of grand getting his teeth fixed because he thought he was going to be on the big screen and it never happened. It's such an odd idea that they're yeah. all like, oh, we're going to be we're gonna be on the cinema screen. Better get my teeth fixed. Pretty much. I mean, it, it did happen for Chris <clears throat> Barry eventually. Yeah. He's, he's been in the two made movies. And <laughs> Danny John Jules has been in... But Danny John Jules was always perfect anyway. Let's <laughs> Danny, Danny John Jules <laughs> ages. He ages well, but Danny John Jules ages. The cat does not age. <laughs> Watching Twentica before, I'm like, yeah, he looks no different from how he did in the mid '90s. What is going on? It's amazing what he's he can do slightly more baby faced in the first three seasons. Yeah, and then he just doesn't age. It's so what twenty odd years, and he looks the same. Yeah, my god. I mean, cat don't crack. So <laughs> essentially, oh um, god. But back to Earth, the director's cut is um, is a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. If you are aware of, or have at least seen enough of, the movie Blade Runner. <laughs> well, because you seem to be pretty familiar with Blade Runner. Because when I first watched Back to Earth on its TV broadcast as the three episodes, I hadn't watched Blade Runner. You're a madman. I'd played the PC game to death. It's still to this day one of my favourite games. Yeah, and I have, I have not found my copy or a computer that can sort of... Run an older game. Yeah, well, getting an older game someone is a real pain. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, so I, I, I was aware of Blade Runner and I, and I knew it. Uh, I knew it enough. Um, but when I watched Back to Earth, I was like, I don't get it. What's with the pyramid? What's with the, what's with the foil squids? What is this? Fact, some of that is a bit much. For yeah. Me. Oh, by by part three or, or the third act in the direct cut, it's like, I mean, you're just doing a Blade Runner pastiche now. What's going yeah, on? Yeah. Where's the the Back to Earth storyline? And why Blade Runner? Yeah, yeah, well, uh, but also... Why Blade Runner? But also, why that story so soon, about four years, but so soon after the League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse? Yeah! Which is the same premise. A bunch of comedy show characters discover their affection and go to find their creators to change their fate. That's the plot of Back to Earth. Yeah. There, a giant squid has appeared in one of the tanks. It's set nine years, apparently, after Series 8 concludes. Yep. We don't know how they get out of the scenario at the end of Series 8. We know that Kachansky's apparently dead. Um, but they're back on the dwarf. It's seemingly, based on the stuff that he says, the Rimmer that we knew up to Series 7 before he left to become Ace Rimmer. It's not the Rimmer from Series 8. Nope. So, a lot has changed. Lister's, like, reading up on robotics and stuff, which I think continues in Series 10. Mm -hmm. He's only doing it briefly in in Thingy, but, like, he's carried on in Series 10. You get this notion he's trying to better himself and learn more skills. But, um... So, like, everything's moved along a bit. There's a squid in one of the water tanks, which has been blocking the supply. So they go down to find it and attack it. They manage to cut off a tentacle while they debate about what to do, because it seems (laughs) to be disappearing from dimension to dimension, reappearing in the water tank. Suddenly... 
Um, I'm trying to remember her name now. It's uh, Miss Katerina... Katerina Summit or other. Yeah. Basically, apparently, Red Dwarf science officer from back in the day is suddenly enabled as a hologram, a hard light hologram, which mm-hmm. is apparently impossible. You can only have one on the ship at one time. But she's like, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm on a trial period. Rimmer's going to be deleted in 24 hours to get your affairs in order. Um... I'm here as priority as a ship's hologram to look after the crew. The crew is technically just Lister. And what I can do is take the DNA from the squid with its interdimensional powers, hook it up through this drill, do this, that, and the other, create a dimensional portal, <laughs> find a dimension where he can find a human from whatever time period and either move there or bring some back, begin mating, and restart the human race in our dimension. So already, like, what? Is this the end of the show? The hell's going on here? Like... Everything's going to work out for Lister, I suppose, but not Rimmer. And what is happening? They get instead sucked to an invalid dimension where the episodes are playing out on the TVs in the TV store they land in behind them. Because it turns out Red Dwarf is a TV series in this dimension. Back to Earth is the special that's coming soon to DVD. And at the end of Back to Earth, they die. So they suddenly go on a quest to find the creators after sort of accepting that they're not real. Yeah. Which... Some of them take heavy, some of them don't. Like, Rimmer doesn't, because he's like, brilliant, all my responsibilities are no longer existed. Like, I'm not an absolute arsehole. Apparently someone made me that way, so never mind. Like, Crichton has a very brief minor panic. Um, <laughs> which is quite, he just sort of squeals like, what are we going to do? And then he's got over it. <laughs> so, they eventually make their way to the creator by tracking him down. The creator is essentially the same as the dude from Blade Runner. They accidentally kill him. Burn the page of the last episode in the script. Lister starts to rewrite their destiny. And that's when they twig that it's a hallucination. They're feeling complete elation and joy. But Cat keeps leaving all these little squids everywhere. Kind of like a Blade Runner, the unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. So they realise that it's a hallucination. The squid is like the despair squid from Back to Earth. But it's sort of the opposite. It like makes you feel brilliant. Like it subdues its prey by making them completely content to just lie there, be vegetables, and eventually die. Mm. So Crichton, Rimmer, and Cat wake up, but Lister, knowing this may be the only way he can seek a chance again, stays there until something said to him by some kids who watched the show earlier on makes him realise that no, he's actually a lot better than he's given himself credit for, and he's going to wake up and find Kachansky because she isn't dead. She's yeah. out there somewhere. It's the reason why I like Back to Earth so much, and a lot of people who are Dwarf fans listening to this now will be going, really? That's in your top five? Is because I think it is. And I know it's a sitcom, and it's not necessarily about the performance and the emotion. It's more about having a good time for half an hour yeah, once yeah. a week. But I think it's Craig Charles's best performance. Oh, hands down, yeah. Dramatically, hands down. Because he suddenly gets some really weighty stuff to deal with. Yeah. But because it's not a brief scene in the middle of a half hour of gags and, and, and chuckles, mm-hmm. it gets to sort of last. And he, he, oh my God, he brings it. When when we see Kachansky arrive to come and collect him at the end of the story, and it's Chloe Annette, and it's like, oh, oh so it is Kachansky, oh, brilliant. Mm. Um, like, although some people would say, that's not Kachansky, Claire Grogan's Kachansky. Um, <laughs> and I, I would, I mean, I do like Chloe Annette, but I do kind of agree. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so when that moment happens... It's really sweet. And he's just so happy. But then he realises it. There's some really nice stuff. There's the comic book store with a really bizarre owner um, who sort of gives him the information on where to go. That's when the Blade Runner parody sort of takes over for two minutes, though, with the whole photo analysis. 
Because mm. it's not a gag, it's just, this is Blade Runner. Yeah. We're doing Blade Runner well, now. It's a gag on Blade Runner. Yeah. It is, because it, it does it lasts like two it takes minutes. the concept, yeah. and it just... It's that it's that old comedy trope of taking a concept and just running with it until it's absurd. Mm. And it is absurd, but it's... It, it, but there's just there's so many the, the reason why I like it is it's the little things. Yeah, a lot of, really a lot like of back to earth. Back to earth for me doesn't hold together. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but yeah, there, there are little moments in it where I'm like, oh, but actually, yes, that's brilliant. It's Lister putting on a fancy suit and visiting Kachansky's grave that yeah. he's made in a, like a shrine. It's like a crew memorial, but her photos at the front, and he always like leaves a message. He always goes like apparently once a week, reads her a book, one of her books. And it's like, that's really sweet. Moments like that are really sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The fact that Cat drops out of the ceiling at that point to imply that he's doing sort of what he used to do, which is just going off on his own into the ship and doing whatever is quite nice. The bit where um, the kids on the bus in particular, I think that's my favourite scene, where the two kids on the bus talk yeah, to him. Yeah, like they realise yeah. who he is and they tell him there's a channel named after him and that they really like him. And, and that's what that's what he goes back to later. When, like, they, he says, like, you know, what is it? I think you're really cool, and you don't take any smeg. And though, even though you're really disgusting, sometimes you're quite brave. Yeah. And it sums him up, and he realises that later, and it sort of gives him enough reassurance to be like, no, I'm going to get back out there, I'm going to join my friends, and we're going to find Kachansky. And it's like, that's really cool. Um, Robert Llewellyn's great in this. Yes. And you don't get him for the first, like, 20 minutes. Until he rocks up in his Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Apparently he spent time on a lovely maintenance shelf somewhere <laughs> for a few weeks. Um, uh, Katarina Bartakovsky, I believe yeah. her name is. She's a fun little addition for, for the bit she's in, especially her death. When yes. Rimmer just shoves her in front of a bus. Oh, so it's, it's morally fine if I kill a hologram? Well, yeah. Of All course right. it is, great. Womp. Push in front of a bus. Rimmer asking for the first class section of the bus, like when they're getting on there is a nice bit. The fact it's all that, first the class, fact mate. that they, they find enough <laughs> the fact that they find enough money to get on the tube by rooting around in the couches at like DFS. They find nineteen quid. They find in the nineteen couch. quid and Rimmer pockets the condoms that he finds yeah, and there takes are some them with him. Cracking gags. Some really nice moments. And then the revelation at the end that the only reason this has happened is because like they keep mentioning back to reality. Yeah. At the time of that story, on the way out of the ocean planet, Cat found a tiny squid and took it to eat it. I wanna eat a little fishy. And then lost it. <laughs> and like 10, 12 years later, this has happened. Yeah. Kind of fun. It, it does feel, it's a bit of a wank fest, a fan wank fest back to earth in that some of it is only really enjoyable if you're a fan of Red Dwarf. But the director's cut is a fun little movie. Like, it's a fun sort of, here you go, here's a feature-length treat. They're all still damn good at playing these characters. And I've got, every time I watch it, I start to like it more and more. So it may be sacrilege to some of you out there, but smeg off, it's my number four. What's your number three, sir? By Jiminy Greaves. The earliest episode in my top five. This is season two's Thanks for the Memory. Oh! Okay, go on. Um, Hit me, hit me. So, thanks for the... (laughs) Thanks for the memory. Um, <laughs> starts with the, the dwarf boys having a party on a on a planetary with a beautiful atmosphere um, for Rimmer's first death day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Again, uh, the whole thing of like finding joy where you can make it yourself, like yeah. this this this, hot, this horribly bleak lifestyle. They're even letting Lister play his guitar. Yeah, that's how drunk they are. 
Um, <laughs> even the scutters are drunk. Um, then they, they fly Blue Midget back to the dwarf. And then they wake up the next morning. Lister and Cat have broken legs. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's finished Lister's jigsaw. Four pages have been torn out of Lister's diary. And apparently they've lost four days of time. The black box is missing as well. So like, oh. Oh, This okay. isn't unusual at all. <laughs> so, eventually they, they, they trigger the homing, they go after the homing beacon on the, uh, on the black box and find it buried on an airless moon with a, sh- in a shallow grave with a gravestone that reads to the memory of Lisa Yates, which is one of Lister's old girlfriends. So, they um, they go back and watch the black box recording in which it transpires that as a birth as a drunken birthday present, Lister decided to give Rimmer eight months of his memory, the eight months that he dated Lisa Yates, which of course then leads to the friction because Rimmer now remembers dating someone that Lister dated, and that's his most treasured memory. So, but then well, first you get this whole, memory. You get this whole stuff of him bragging at first. Like he wakes up and he's suddenly like, yeah. he's like, oh, I've just been remembering something. No, oh, it's great. I love it. And I'm not sure why I used to dress like this and eat this sort of stuff. I don't remember yeah. doing that, but oh, it was the best time of my life. And Lister at first is kind of just going along with it like, yeah, I'm pleased for you. But then the sort of coincidences and connections start to happen for, like for Rimmer. <laughs> yep. So, um... Does it end up where, they, where he thinks that one of them, like she was sleeping with one of them behind the other? Yeah, for, for a moment he, he gets yeah. the idea in his head that <laughs> that, that she was double timing um, until Lister comes clean. And um, but again, it's <laughs> it, you, again it's a great episode because it does what Red Wolf does best, and it uses the weirdness, sci-fi weirdness, to get into the characters mm. to explore Rimmer's sense of failure and loneliness, and he's heartbroken for the first time when he finds out that he never um, that he never dated Lisa. Um, and then, of course, it's all it's all about the the connections of how they get those four days erased, and the jigsaw gets completed, and the cat and uh, Lister get broken. <laughs> feet by dropping the headstone when they're burying the black box. Um, and but and then it's just... Yeah, Lister's hates Rimmer, but he's still, he's still his friend. Yeah, that's the thing. Lister's, Lister's a bum, but he's still yeah. a nice guy. Yeah. And Rimmer is an arsehole, but... He's still a person. He's still a person. And Lister takes, like, pity on him and he's like, I want to give him something nice. It was really misguided. It's really misguided, but you can see why he's doing it. It's totally from the right place. And that's what's so interesting about their relationship. The best Red Dwarf for me, and we will get into this a bit further on the list, but the best Red Dwarf for me is where it's just the two of them. Yeah. I I, I mean, it's not the best thing about Red Dwarf, but you know you're onto a winner when it's just those two in a scene. Yeah. Because the characters are so well-defined. Chris and Charles and, and Craig are both so, like... Comfortable. But well, they are those parts. characters essentially at this point. Yeah, and and even at the, even back then, because it's it's quite well known that they had a bit of a sort of discrepancy. Like they, they, didn't, they didn't like each other for a while. A while. Yeah. Um, but that kind of translates into the characters well. Yeah. So they use it. They take advantage of that. I don't think they were at that point here, but it's just like there is so much to love about their relationship. Yeah. They are the, they're each other's worst enemy, but they're each other's best friend. Yeah. And it's because of circumstance that they're both 
and they just have to kind of put up with it. Pretty much. So when when you have to like list of doing something nice for Rimmer, it's sweet because yeah. he might be like, "I'm doing it to shut you up," but it's like you're also doing it because it's a nice thing to do. Yeah. Uh, like you said, even if it is horribly misguided, I just I just think it's a nice um, <laughs> it's a nice exploration of their relationship. Yeah. Especially and the developing of it from throughout the first season to where they are then, I think it's a really good episode for that dynamic. And um, yeah, again, it's just funny. It's uh, really funny. <laughs> to save a bit of time, you'll be happy to know my number three is Back to Reality. Oh, hey! Um, making a return, so we've already got one match. Hey! Um, We're so compatible. <laughs> oh, baby cakes. Uh, pretty much the same reasons we discussed. It's just a cracking episode. It's a really cool sci-fi idea. Um, and in, I was saying before, like, I don't think many things have done it the many shows have done it that way where they're going like maybe everything you knew was fake yeah uh, I don't think the next time that happened for me uh, to my memory uh, was till uh, wasn't till Buffy was yeah, to the episode in series 6 yeah where um, you find out that the whole show is just a hallucination this crazy girl's having in a mental asylum and even at the end of that episode like it's kind of revealed that no this is fake she's been poisoned by this demon it's it's all fake but when she like kills the demon in, in the show we know there is one additional scene of Buffy slipping into a death-like coma in the asylum mm. and them declaring there's nothing more they can do for her. Which makes you go, wait, why did you add that on? <laughs> I thought that reality was fake. Wait, hang on, is this ri-? And they don't, they've never answered it. Joss Whedon, and, Joss Whedon and the team said, you don't need to know. It's up to you. You can decide. Either way, it's pretty freaking tragic. Um... So, yeah, Back to Reality always gets a, a thing for me. Number two, Matthew! What's your number two, Bowser? Again, I've, I've definitely got a trend for final episodes of the series here. <laughs> this is series four, episode six. Meltdown. Oh, the Waxworks! The Waxworks! Wax world. Which, is it Waxworld? I can't really call it. I don't know what the, the place is called now. But this was originally <laughs> supposed to be earlier in that series. Because um, it doesn't it was, feel like a finale. Like, no, the show doesn't really do finales, no. but they do begin a trend of their last yeah. episodes kind of having a big ending or a cliffhanger of some kind. Um, it was, um, this one doesn't feel like that, but it, it is a big enough episode to sort of be like a nice... If you're binging it, it's like a nice way to end the series. It was run... It was moved back into the end of its run mm. and end of that series because it was uh, due to where... Around the same time the Falklands War broke out ah. and the BBC got cold feet about having such a fiercely anti-war episode yeah which it is and that's one of the reasons why I like it it's, again it's it's um, Red Dwarf using comedy and sci-fi to explore some pretty heavy themes mm. um, but also giving Rimmer his ultimate power fantasy yeah he's always, he's always um, admired the generals of war it's pretty crazy and he gets to be a general it's one of those episodes where he flies off the handle as well because mm-hmm. Rimmer is almost the villain of the show if you wanted In to pick a bad yeah, Rimmer's the most consistently dangerous member of the crew Mm. And then this episode, he full on is like he takes command of a series of um, what's it? He, he ends up with like all the killers and the murderers and the dictators. No, it's the other way the... around. It's the other way around. So basically, the the um, the this one <laughs> is you get a bit of stuff the episode of Rimmer oh, talking about. Of course, because it's the lineup. Yeah, sorry, he's, go he's on, talking yeah. about his, uh, his, <laughs> his love of military fantasy and he, his glorious risk campaigns of his youth. <laughs> Crichton finds a matter paddle down on Z on Z deck, Z deck, um, which is like a teleporter thing. Um, so they end up using it, and they find themselves on Wax World. <laughs> it's 
which in itself is a movie name. Let's be honest, you could make a film yeah. on that. It used to be a tourist attraction with wax droids of um, of various uh, historical figures. When they first teleport there, they've got <laughs> they're uh, accosted by huge, unconvincing puppet dinosaurs. Um, Catalyst to beam over there. They end up getting taken hostage by um, what they think are Nazis. Um, they teleport into into Adolf Hitler's war room, then try and teleport out and find themselves in the chimney. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, and they get taken prisoner, and there's a, gr- a great sequence where Lister's narrating what he can see through the bars of his cell, and he sees uh, a bunch of a bunch oh, of historical soldiers march out Winnie the Pooh to firing squad. <laughs> he refuses the blindfold and is shot down by the firing squad. Um, meanwhile, uh, it's Winnie the Pooh. Rimmer and Crichton have found themselves. <laughs> No one should have to see that. <laughs> Rimmer and Crichton have found themselves with the good wax droids, which are That's mainly so... pacifists, entertainers, and scientists. You've got Stan Laurel, Elvis. That uh, Stan Gander. Laurel's brilliant. It's a great Stan Laurel. It's a great impersonation. Um, you've got Marilyn Monroe. Um, uh, <laughs> Mother Teresa's in there. Mother Teresa. Um, <laughs> and he no, decides... No, Don't let it do me, Joe boy. Oh, Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> the lineup seems amazing. Oh, oh my but God. basically, it, it goes to his head. <laughs> the the power goes to Rimmer's head, and he decides to forge them into an army and launch a final assault on the evil wax droids, <laughs> which is basically a uh, a front for Crichton to sneak into the environmental controls and turn the temperature up so all the wax droids melt. <laughs> So Lister ends up berating Rimmer for <laughs> Rimmer's concept of a victory being him the only survivor of his army. <laughs> Again, there's, as with all the best Red Dwarf, great laughs, genre, tro- genre tropes to explore really heavy themes. It's, it's really anti-war. I've not watched that one in a while. And I really um, want to watch it now. It's very good. <laughs> and it's, it's messages bang on. I was like, why, why bother fighting? Because no one wins in war. Doesn't matter how many casualties there are, nobody wins. Um, because people are always gonna die. What bleak ended. It's, it's super bleak. (laughs) It's super bleak. But, but softened, the blow softened slightly by, like, sort of historical figures who don't belong in the same time period. It's been blown up and melted. Yeah, it's like when you. there's a scene of him just charging across the, the battlefield and just getting blown up. Gandhi's just kind of like sort of hobbling because he's yeah, just this he's, little he's dude. Yeah, he gets blown up and they just see sandals smoking on the floor. <laughs> it's... It's just... Uh, there's a great little turn by uh, Tony Hawk as Caligula. Yes! Oh, God. He's... Um, Honourable mention to Tony Hawk. He keeps popping up throughout the show. He's the talking toaster in the first season. Talking toaster. He's uh, he's the host in um, Better Than Life, like the host of the party. Yes, yes, of course he is. He's one of those actors who just pops up in it quite a lot. This is Tony Hawk, the British comedian, not Tony Hawk's the American skateboarder. Yeah. (laughs) Just so you know. Um, Mind you, I would like to see Tony Hawk, pro skater... (laughs) Just to see what the difference would be. Yes. Yeah. Um, Tony Hawk, apostrophe S, not Tony Hawks. 
apostrophe. Um, Tony Meltdown's a good shout, man. Yeah, Meltdown's a great episode. Meltdown's a um, good shout. Again, I, I have I have a real thing for the way they use comedy to explore heavy themes, as we'll get to when we get to my number one. But first, Ooh, my number no- two. My number two is uh, I, it's this high up on my list because. The end, which is the beginning, for those who yes. don't know, the first episode is the end. Yes. Sets up the premise of the show. Yeah. Future Echoes, episode two, says, this is what you're watching. Yeah. Just to confirm, this is what you're watching now. The end isn't really an episode of Red Dwarf so much as an origin story comic book. Yeah. In that it goes, Here's how we've got to the situation. Future Echoes hits you over the head with a bizarre sci-fi concept <laughs> right away and then just says, keep up. And it it's great for it. So it's the second episode. I didn't think this was going to be so high up, but re-watching it recently, I went, I it is really good. like Future yeah, Echoes. It's really good. So you've got Holly has, got, has basically said, right, so what we're going to do, I've woken you up now because it's safe to come out. And we found this cat creature, and Rimmer's here as well. What I we're going to do? We've actually explained the, the, what's happened at that Red Dwarf, have we? Well, uh, if, so, if you've got this yeah. far, I think you know the basic premise. But Red Dwarf is a JMC mining corporation vessel, which is out in space to mine the Jupiter meet- Mining Corporation. Mining Corporation, yeah, basically to uh, to <laughs> you swine to, uh, <laughs> to to mine like ores and and rocks and minerals and things for yeah. different asteroids and planetoids and whatnot. Uh, it's apparently sometime in like the mid two thousand. It's like sort of somewhere in the series. I think it's established. It's like two thousand fifty, two thousand sixty, sometime around there in Earth history. I thought it was later. Um, I think they I think they retcon it a couple of oh. times, but I, I think it's established to be like about. Just less than a hundred years after when the series first was broadcast, um, and Lister and Rimmer are the Lister's the third technician, Rimmer's the second technician. Basically, their job is to fix like the dispensing machines and you know put oil on the the creaky do- cubicle <laughs> doors and and make sure the scutters aren't like malfunctioning. That's basically their job. Yeah, um, Lister's got a cat. Uh, which he smuggled aboard because he's got a five-year plan. He's a layabout, a bit of a waster, but he's saving every single one of his pennies because one day he wants to retire to Fiji with his cat, his cat's kittens, because his cat's pregnant with twins. Kachansky, a senior officer who he's like got a bit of a thing with and he's trying to woo, and he's going to stay on a flooded farm and raised, uh, what is it, and raise a cow, a chicken. Look, it was like a cow, three sheep and two horses or something yeah. like that. And that was it. I'm going to have a cow sheep and breed horses <laughs> and they're all going to have to learn how to swim because the farm farm's going to be funny but it's nice and cheap but he's just really he's, he's a bit of a dreamer he's 25 and he's a dreamer yeah and, and that's his existence rumors an arsehole he wishes he was an officer and keeps taking the exams and has blackouts or psychotic episodes every time he does it it's a chronic failure the captain finds out about lister's cat which is technically a health violation and a quarantine thing so he asks him to turn the cat over Lister won't do it. And if he doesn't turn the cat over, Lister... If he turns the cat over, the cat's going to be dissected. Yeah. If he doesn't turn the cat over, he says, to be fair, no, he says, um, would you put him back together again when you're finished? <laughs> he says, the cat would be dead. Well, to be fair then, sir, what's in it for the, the cat? cat. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the penalty for not turning the cat over is Lister has to go into stasis for 18 months. So basically, he gets 18 months of his pay docked. And instead of him being a waste of space and resources, he's put in stasis and he's woken up 18 months later. Lister goes in, he's woken up for what feels like two seconds for him. 
and it's three million years later. Shortly after he went into stasis, there was a radiation leak. A drive plate wasn't fixed properly, as we find out later, by Rimmer. And the radiation leak wiped out the entire crew, who are now just piles of dust that have been there for millions of years. It took three million years for the radiation to get to a safe level for Lister to be let out of stasis. The hologram, which was another person at the time, like is, is the designated like hologrammatic member of the crew, who is usually the most senior officer to have passed away so that they can still perform their duties to a degree, um, has been selected as Rimmer because he knows Lister and it's someone for him to talk to. And they find a humanoid cat creature, the cat, who is the very, very, very distant descendant of Frankenstein, Lister's cat, based on the kittens that she had, because she apparently made her way into the hold, has been there the whole time, and over millions of years, cats have evolved into humanoids, and moved on. But there's this one guy there still exploring and taking advantage of all the free stuff that's around, because no one else is there now. This is my investigating feet! Wow! Uh, Oh, better make myself look big! (laughs) (laughs) Sticks his arms up. Um, Oh, he's great. Uh, So that's the that's episode one sort of is like, this is the premise... We're going to get back to Earth. We're going to get back to Fiji because that's the mission now. You know, the slime's coming home. Episode two, Future Echoes is, this is what you're going to deal with. These are the concepts. These are the characters. These are the relationships from now on. And the reason I love it is Future Echoes is it's going to take them, uh, I think it's 4,000 years to turn the ship around. So to sit, to hasten, just to turn it around so they can go back toward where Earth should be. So to hasten the process, Holly's going to do it in light speed, which is going to reduce it to 24 hours. That means Lister's going to go back into stasis and stay there until they're near where Earth should be. Cat's mm-hmm. going to go in with him. Rimmer will be turned off, although he's protesting because he's like, you won't turn me back on again. It's like, we will, we will. Although at this point, they probably wouldn't bother. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Lister starts to see things that then happen shortly afterwards. So he cuts himself shaving in his reflection, but not in the room. He's shouting for Rimmer. Rimmer appears in the reflection. They're having a conversation about the mirror. Lister has no idea what's happening. It seems to stop. He continues to shave, cuts himself, calls for Rimmer, and the conversation happens. So already, like, what the hell is this? Cat mm-hmm. runs through having broken his tooth, and yet they find him in the room they're heading to a moment later, completely fine. Rimmer has a whole conversation with a Lister that isn't there in the drive room while Lister's watching it, trying to get his attention, which then happens a minute later the right way round and everything Lister says makes sense. There's some really smart um, It's so good. writing and performance there. The light speed cocks up a bit so that they essentially catch up with themselves in a short time in the future. Which yeah. already is a great idea. We're catching up with something that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but what makes it great is the bit where Rimmer sees Lister die at the drive console and tells Lister so Lister tries to prevent his fate, which is obviously going to happen at some point in the next few hours. Yeah. That's where the episode for me moved into my top five. Because I'm like, what a great idea. And he faces it with dignity. He eventually goes like, I can't avoid this. He's like, what was I wearing? That t-shirt and my hat, right? So he puts the hat on. He's like, let's get it over with. And it's just like, what a great idea. I thought I was about to sit down for half an hour and just laugh at some silly people saying weird things in a spaceship. I came out of it going, this is some pretty clever shit. Which again, and that's red dwarf. Yeah. But that's red why it's in my that's why it's in my number two, because it sets that tone. Yeah. It's there. In in episode two, they're like, This is the show you're gonna be watching from now on. And they never really hold up after that. 
So, Future Echoes may only be episode two. Everybody looks really baby young. Yes. Um, and there is ref- cultural references and terminology that would only be funny to people living in the late 80s. But that's my number two. My number two is episode two. That's good. That's a good, that's a good number two. Dirty bugger. We've made it. We're here. We're here. Matthew our, Watson. Our favourite episodes of Red Dwarf. That is, for me, another season of the series finale. Season three, <gasps> episode six, The Last Day. Oh my god, this is where Crichton's going to get shut down, yep. isn't it? Yep. Oh my god, right. Here's with the plot. Here's so, with the plot summary. They've, um, after recovering Crichton at the beginning That's of season a great two. one, actually. I didn't even think about that one. It's a good episode. After recovering Crichton at the, at the um, at the end of, at the start of season two, and then him going off on his own, they find, at some point before the beginning of season three, they As find explained in a fast-forwarded Star Wars credits Which credit. I actually paused and read the whole of whatever you watched it, it. it's, it's their great. it's their first it's their first reboot which they do quite a bit yeah where they just go screw it we're changing the status quo there's the explanation go they new, retool new the show series. Pretty, yeah new holly Crichton's part of the crew new and thing starbug's involved i think that's why i like season three onwards the most because <laughs> that's your favorite dynamic as we were saying before robert Wellen brings a, a jigsaw piece to the puzzle that we didn't know was missing yes and then when he arrives like oh this is brilliant yeah this is a really good because the david ross Crichton. Works for the episode, but I'm not a huge fan of that of his performance. Mm. He was going to come back for Crichton, but they couldn't get him because he was. Uh, on He's in theatre, yeah, he couldn't. Um, uh, but Robert Wellen was also in theatre, and someone involved in the production saw him in a show where he was playing a robot in a comedy, <laughs> and they went talk to him. Yes. So they auditioned him, and they played around, and the rest is history. Robert Wellen is Crichton. Um, and this episode, I think this is the first, aside from obviously Crichton. This is the first time with Robert Llewellyn in the role where you get a Crichton fueled episode, isn't it? Yeah, he's like, he's kind of the the he's sort of the crux. He's, a, he's around the, he's around for the for stuff mm-hmm. up to this, but this is about him yeah. and him being a mechanoid. And he gets two of them in at the start of series yes. four, two of them in a row. Um, this <laughs> is um, so he receives he receives a message. They finally get a mail pod. For a, and, they, and he receives a message. Oh, they catch up. It catches up, doesn't it? Yeah. Which which becomes a trend that happens in late yeah. seasons too. Because <laughs> they're going, they're going back. All right, but it's um in this post pod is only one delivery, and it's for Crichton, Jim Reaper, head of sales. Yeah, he announces that his billing expiry date is almost up, and his inbuilt shutdown chip will automatically activate in twenty four hours time, killing him, and that his replacement is on the way. So, it's then, it becomes Crichton facing the concept of mortality. Yeah. Which is odd for a mechanoid. How it's dealt with, with machine religion and the way that machines have been taught that they can spend a life in servitude because they're going to get to go to Silicon Heaven once they're done, (laughs) which makes Lister furious. Mm. Um... Because it's again, it's that's organized religion. That's what it does. It controls people by promising a, a better life afterwards. Um, and so Lister resolves himself with the help of Cat and Rimmer uh, to give Crichton the most memorable last day he can. So they throw a big party for him, get him, get some Android home brew so they can get him drunk, and, you know, have a, and they have a real party night. And then Crichton goes, "Hang on, you know what? I don't." want to die. So he overrides his shutdown program only to realise that his replacement's on the way. 
Mm. And his replacement will forcibly shut him down if he has to. So then it becomes about them protect, uh, preparing the arrival of Hudson 10. Yes. And, um. <laughs> Is that the one who speaks like this? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> He's still got like the belly thing, <laughs> like sort of the, the the like the, the monitor. Yeah, but like he's sort of overall a much more powerful looking, like more human looking beast of a mechanoid. My God, that's a great episode selection. Mm. God damn it! No to look on heaven. Then where do all the calculators go? <laughs> and it's a funny line. It's a great. But line. then you think about the poignancy of it and what it actually means for Crichton. Calculators are probably like the puppies exactly. of, of the artificial world. Like exactly. he's asking me where do all the calculators, where do all the puppies go? That's really sad. Red Dwarf tackles religion a few times. Yeah, it does a great job it was Because I also, when I was when I was shortlisting episodes for Best One, I also went Waiting for God was on my shortlist as well. From Series 1. From Series 1, which Cloyster. Yeah. Cloyster and Fuchal. It, when, it, when, when it becomes that, when it becomes clear that, that the cat people who Frankenstein, who evolved from Frankenstein, uh, Lister's cat, then had a religion based around Cloister the Stupid. Yeah. Which they went to war over, and Lister feels incredibly guilty mm. about the fact that this, this civilization went to war in his name. They yeah. each other because they believed, like, this and they believed that. And over the silliest thing. Like, sausages and donuts became symbols um, of religious power and, yeah. and things like that, just because there were vague memories of him eating donuts and sausages. And it's just, um... And he sort of sends that priest off. Like, he uses that the belief that priest grew up with yeah. and preached to the other cats. He uses it to soothe him and make him feel better about him passing away because yeah. he thinks he's going to go to Fouchal. So he has to sort of even... Go again, like he has to admit that this can be a good thing for people. Yeah, but it's the most bittersweet ending. It's so horrible, and it's also weird because you get the implication that Cat occasionally goes and visits this priest. Yeah, and just says hello to him and then moves on. And it's this blind old dying cat. It's so odd. And and season ten, even as recent as season ten, they tackle religion in the episode Lemon. Yes, yeah. all albeit in a more fr- frivolous way, but they still touch on like Lister's kind of distaste toward organised religion, mm-hmm. and, and Rimmer's like Rimmer's family being revealed to believe in the Church of Judas um, <laughs> Iscariot, which is basically a church believing that Judas was a decoy on purpose. He wasn't a traitor. He pretended to be a traitor. So that he could die on the cross because he was Jesus's twin brother, so that Jesus could arise a few days later and continue Christianity's faith and restore faith and everything and this, that, and the other. Meaning that the reason why uh, the rumor's middle name has been Judas this whole time isn't just a sly joke from the writers. It's because his family believe Judas is the true hero. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh god, like it all lines up in a really odd way. It's um, <laughs> it uh, for me, like I say, it's a topic that. I as I say, it's a topic that Red Dwarf tackles a lot, but this is probably the most uh, the most succinct. Of it, yeah, yeah. With, with, with it applying it to <clears throat> mechanoids and the concept of what makes you alive and what oh, how. So <laughs> and what are all the calculators called? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, so Crichton defeats Hudson Ten by revealing to him that there is no silicon heaven, which Crichton, which Hudson Ten can't deal with, um, and therefore. Just self-destructs. Um, <laughs> it's it just it for me again. It uses the characters to explain the situation and frame everything 
in such a accessible and enjoyable way. So that the weight of it, the weight of the of the subject matter, never really stops the laughs. Mm. And in fact, they inform each other. Yeah. Um, which is the balance that Red Dwarf plays so nicely when it's at its best. And I think it's just it's probably the best example of that in the show for me. That which is, is why it's my number one episode of Red Dwarf. That is a damn good pick. Red Dwarf. Um, so, okay, my number one. A lot of people right now will be, again, yelling at us and going like, why isn't Gunman number one? Gunman's good, but... Why, why, I... isn't, why isn't Parallel Universe number one? Because that's a big fan favourite as well. Mm. Um, my number one is also from Series 3. Oh. And it's from the middle of Series 3. Oh. My number one is Marooned. Yes! So... Yes! Red Dwarf is suddenly surrounded, according to Holly, by five black holes. <laughs> because it's like buses. You don't encounter a black hole in three million years of space travel and suddenly five of them show up at once. <laughs> How could you not spot five black holes? Well, the thing about a black hole is it's black. <laughs> and the thing about space, the colour of space, your typical space colour, is it's black. <laughs> so emergency program means that Holly asks for them to evacuate the ship. Yeah. She's going to navigate the black holes. If all goes well, they're gonna meet on this moon three days later. Oh, oh like thereabouts. So Cat and Crichton go off in a blue midget with some supplies, and Rimmer and Lister go off in Starbuck with some supplies. The idea is they've all got to take some essentials, things they can't bear to live without just in case this goes horribly wrong. So, Lister takes his guitar. That's pretty much it. Because he's like, oh, it'll be a couple of days, it'll be fine. Rimmer takes the one heirloom that his father gave him that he'll, he won't go anywhere without in case this is the end, which is this giant luxury, ca- luxury carved camphor wood chest. Inside it is like a 200, 300 year old replica of Napoleon's Armée du Nord made out of wood. Like a one of a kind set. And 20 grand in cash that he's put aside for a rainy day. So, this is, these are the stakes. $24,000 pounds. That's it. No, it's just like 20 grand. 24. Um, <laughs> um, Starbug crashes. The Navicom screws up. They've got no way to get in touch with Red Dwarf or with Blue Midget. The best they can do is hope that the guys will eventually trail back to try and find them. So it suddenly becomes a mission of Rimmer. Obviously, eventually his battery will run out, but that's probably not going to happen for a long time. But for Lister, he needs to keep warm and stay fed because they're on an ice planet. I think it's an asteroid. Yeah. So the episode is basically Chris Barry and Craig Charles trying to keep each other occupied in an enclosed space. Part of my love for Red Dwarf, a very big part of my love for Red Dwarf, comes from the scenes of just those two talking. So this episode's my dream episode. In Bickering more than talking. I yeah, thought. tearing each other apart. It's that bitching. odd couple relationship, yeah. And and here they're forced to be together. Like yeah. they're already they already feel like that in the show anyway. Because Rimmer wants to obviously live, so as a hologram, he's not going to give up that opportunity. But he has to live with Lister. Lister wants company. And Holly has made sure it's just Rimmer. They are forced to live together. In this situation, they really are forced to live together. 
And it is great. It, it's this whole thing of like burning the last vestige of civilization to stay warm when Lister starts burning up the books that are on board because it's the only way to keep a fire going. And Rumor points out that like the complete works of Shakespeare is one of the books. He's like, that could be the last ever copy of the works of Shakespeare in the universe and you're about to burn it to keep warm for five minutes. And it's this whole thing of like, oh God, it's, it's the examination of like, how long does it take for someone to become a savage? How long does it take for a people to completely regress into savages? Yeah. And Rimmer's case to try, it's this whole thing of him being really uppity about it and trying to plead that culture is more important than Lister staying alive <laughs> and yet not being able to recite a damn word from any Shakespeare play to prove his point as to why it's so important. So he's, he's just like, do some Shakespeare, all right, okay. He sort of hunches over, he pulls up and he goes, now! I can't remember the rest of it. He's like, what the hell was that? He's like, from Richard III, that now, that brilliant now speech that he does. Oh, unforgettable. And it's just all this stuff. Like, burning like Biggles learns to fly first. Like, they burn the books in order of how little they matter, really, in the grand scheme of culture. There's, oh, the only food left is like, there's sort of like a, a damp napkin with a bit of sauce on it. There's a sachet of ketchup, something like that. Um, a pot noodle and a tin of dog food. You know the pot noodle gets eaten last. Why is that the same? Listen, just goes out. We always get eaten last. Then. Can't stand pot noodle. There's the scene where he eats the dog food and he's trying to convince himself that it's like steak with blue cheese sauce. And it's going to taste delicious, delicious. And he swallows a mouthful of it. And Rumor goes, "Are you okay?" And he says, "Now I can see why dogs lick their arsehole <laughs> to get rid of the taste of the dog food." It's all that stuff. There's the discussion. They try and keep each other occupied. They talk about how they lost their virginity. Rimmer delays for ages before finally actually answering. And it turns out his fondest memory of it all was more the fact that he was in his brother's really nice car in the back seat when they did it. He can't really remember anything about the sex he had. <laughs> Lister apparently lost his virginity on a golf course with an older teenage girl at the age of 12. Which Rimmer finds disgusting because it means he could have been a member of the golf club, so he was on the grounds illegally. <laughs> but then it gets to the point of survival. Lister may only have a few days left. It needs to keep warm, and the only thing that's left to burn is the camphor wood chest, the 24 grand, the wooden soldiers, and Lister's guitar. So the cash goes in first because he convinces Rimmer there's. You're not. Where are you going to spend it? Yeah. Like, I'm going to burn it. That lasts all of five minutes. Lister convinces Rimmer that the only thing he's got left in his life that keeps him sane is his guitar. I know I'm not good on it. I know I'm not a wizard. I know I'm shit at it. But it's the only thing that keeps... When all the bleakness of what's happened to me gets to me, how hopeless our mission is, how hopeless our journey is, the guitar's the only thing that's never walked out on me. It's never let me down. And Rimmer's just like, you've got to do it. So Lister asks if he can play one more tune. And Rimmer lets him. And can't really stick around because he can't stand the sound of Lister singing this really horrible kind of whiny song and playing it so terribly. So Rimmer goes out for a walk. That's where Lister grabs a pencil, stencils a guitar shape out the back of the comfort chest, breaks it in half and sticks it in the fire. <laughs> it's just, oh, like this is, it's rarely does Red Dwarf kind of dip into farce, but like this is the closest I can think of where it just goes completely farcical because Rimmer comes back, sees the silhouette of a charred, the charred remains of a guitar burning. And suddenly every grievance, every sort of like problem he's ever had with Lister as a person goes away 
He realises that Lister is a good and decent man who will sacrifice when it matters. Like, you're not this like slobbish oik that I've always thought you are. You are a good man. Burn the soldiers. Burn them. Like, do it. I will sacrifice them for you. Like, you are a good person. It's like, naturally, Lister starts to feel incredibly guilty because he knows his guitar's just stowed in the locker behind him. Nice. <laughs> he gets to the point where they're eventually found by Cat and Crichton as the flames are slowly beginning to lick down on the guitar. <laughs> so as they're leaving Starbuck to go to Blue Midget, Lister goes to the cupboard, pulls his guitar out, River sees it, asks for Crichton to open the camphorwood chest, <laughs> sees the cut-out guitar shape in the back. It just it ends with basically this, like Brigger hacksaw. Because in this episode we find out River was, the reason why he's always wanted to be a, like a general, to be around yeah. great men, is because according to a, a hypnotherapist that he met in college... He was Alexander the Great's chief eunuch. <laughs> so being in Alexander the Great's palace is what has given him this desire, as far as he's concerned, all his life to be amongst these great men, these men of war, these men of conquest. The episode ends with him asking for Crichton to get the hacksaw because he's about to do to Lister what Alexander the Great once did to him. <laughs> and it's, it's so weird because there's hardly any cat. There's a little yeah. dose of cat and it's always great. And there's a little dose of Holly who explains the black holes which is grit on the monitor. Because <laughs> the thing about grit, yeah, yeah, is that it's black. It's black. And the thing about black holes, <laughs> the colour of black holes, is that they're black. So who knew? <laughs> so there's hardly any Holly, there's hardly any cat. We get like three lines from Crichton and all of them are in a really off Canadian accent because I think it was the first dialogue Robert Llewellyn recorded and he was still picking a voice. Yeah. Um... There's that. It's just Rimmer and, and Lister. Yeah. And it works so well. And if the rest of that series had just happened to be these two sat in one cabin driving each other insane as the food ran low, I would have watched it still. That's not to say, obviously, the other elements aren't what makes it, because they really are. But as a one-off, as just a tete-a-tete, as a two-hander between these two absolute bastards being and, bastards to each other. And for you, really, the core of Red Dwarf. I mean, you've said before as well, that's... The core of what appeals to you about it. Yeah, is these two people yeah. dealing with the situation they're in. So that episode for me will always be my personal number one because yeah. it's just the it's the peak of that. To the point where at the end Rimmer's changed his mind about Lister. Till he sees the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so great, it's so good. So that's my number one. Um I was to throw in a couple of honourable mentions real quick. Okay, um uh, Camille. Camille. In fact, great. the first half of series four is one honourable mention to me. Camille, DNA and yeah. Justice. All great. Really great stories. Great um, concepts. Camille especially, because it's basically Casablanca. And you get to see you basically get you get to see a gelf that is a I'm not sure what she's called. It's it's a ple- she's a pleasure gelf. Pleasure gelf, that's the one. Appeal to them all and show them what their desires are. So for yeah. Rimmer, it's a female hologram, like an officer similar to him, kind of saucy. Like for Lister, it's sort of it's like a girl who's kind of on his wavelength, who's, yep. you know, sort of the same kind of temperament as him. For Crichton, obviously, it's the one we see for the majority of the episode. It's Camille. It's a female mechanoid, and he discovers the concept of love and that he can actually feel love. Yeah. And for Cat, you see it very briefly. It's just Cat. It's just another cat. It's just him. <laughs> Which makes complete sense. Which is amazing. How am I looking? I'm looking nice! 
Oh, oh god, it's, it's a great idea. It's such a fun concept, especially when like she, uh, her actual partner, the the male pleasure girl, comes to collect her at the end. It's just these two blobs of snot walking around. <laughs> yeah. DNA's great. Crichton becoming human. Yeah. And having to deal with it, and, uh, and you get you get the you get the monster made the, the of Vindaloo um, monster, Vindaloo, Lamb Vindaloo, and Robocop Lister. Oh god, tiny <laughs> Robocop really Lister. Tiny Robocop Lister. <laughs> um, and hey, just just for me. <laughs> Gosh, lager. <laughs> the only thing that can kill a Vindaloo. <laughs> um, uh, justice is fun because yeah. they, they end up on a prison thing and. Rimmer is basically sentenced to a sen- uh, sentenced because uh, he's guilty of genocide for wiping out the entire crew. Not of that ship. he's actually culpable for it; he just feels guilty about it. Yeah, and that's enough for them <laughs> yeah. to put him on trial. Yeah, and Lister is suddenly like a witness to his defense, so you know it's not going to end well. Their defense being that he's so inept <laughs> that any uh, sort of responsibility uh, with for <laughs> for them um, is. It, it lies with the person who gave him that job to do in the first place, not in him for failing it. Shout out to Better Than Life. That one's a highlight from Series 2. The video game Better Than Life, that episode. The one we talked about before with Tony Hawk popping up in oh, it as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really like, and this is a quite, again, sort of very select opinion, I really like Pete from Series 8, Part 1 and 2, the story of the Birdman and the... Do you want some seed? As a T Rex plunges down and eats him. Because in that, I think that's the one where you get the blue midget dance sequence, if I'm not mistaken. No, I think that's the back in the red, actually. But uh, Series yeah, 8's got some nice moments in it. Um, the last one, actually, the last episode of Series 8 is pretty great as well. Only the good. Only the good. Because um, it's a rimmer, it's a rimmer one, it was. Uh, Dimension Jump, Ace Rimmer. Yeah, I've got Dimension Jump on my shoulder. <laughs> <as well>. um, <laughs> Would yeah. you prefer if it was hummus? <laughs> like. <laughs> You get to see Hattie Hayridge not on a monitor screen, which is always nice. It's always <laughs> nice when he gets... And Robert Llewellyn out of makeup. Like, it's always nice yeah. when... <laughs> when those two get to sort of... actually get real people. If you're interested, I'll be in my quarters covered in maple syrup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Dimension Jump's pretty great. What else have I got on my shortlist? Um, Ticket to Ride, I'm going to stick on my shortlist. Ticket list. to Ride's alright, yeah. Because there's some pretty cool stuff in there. I do like Blue. Well, Blue's let's just try to get good. over the loss of just Rimmer. for the Rimmer song. It, that's amazing. Trouble, he will save the day. He's brave oh. and he's fearless. Come what may, without him the mission would go astray. He's Arnold, Arnold, Arnold Rimmer, more reliable than oh, a garden so trimmer. And if you play your cards right, then he just might come round for dinner. Um, just a list of words that rhyme with Rimmer, and they clearly just went. Let's write a song. Out just, of time was very nearly my number five. Oh, time's a really good yeah. one. Either you give us access to the data we require, or be prepared to be blasted out of the sky. Better dead than Smeg. Yeah. <laughs> is that the one with the red alert line in? It's series um, six, I think, isn't it? I don't think it's out Switch of time. Switch to red alert. I think it's... Um... <laughs> Are you no, sure, it's Le- sir? It's Legion, is which Legion? again was on my shortlist as well. That's a good one. But... That would mean changing the bulb. That's such oh. a good line. Christ, there are some brilliant um, lines of dialogue in the show. Oh, hands on deck! Swirly being alert! Fathers and um, Sons from season 10 gets an honorable mention where Lister's, Lister celebrates Father's Day every year because we found out in a robberous he's his own dad. Yeah. Lister celebrates Father's Day by writing Father's Day cards and getting himself presents, getting absolutely blind drunk and then waking up the next morning with presents and cards from his son because, of course, he has no memory of the night before. Yeah. 
Um, that's a really, really good story. Lemons from Series 10 is a pretty decent one as well, the Jesus yeah. episode. I've liked what I've seen of Season 10, which is not very much. Pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, Duct Soup from Series 7 is interesting. Again, because it's a character piece. Yeah. It's the one where the ship goes, and Starbuck goes into, like, shut down, and they might die. So they have to go through the vents to, like, get to the, the well, core and the, um... bring it up. And it's basically just a piece about Crichton's jealousy, this Kachansky adjusting to being stuck in this dimension, Lister sort of showing that he's not going to bother her. Like, he's not pursuing her right now because he knows that's the wrong thing to do and cat having to cope with being incredibly sweaty and disgusting <laughs> like it's just that stuff works really well um polymorph obviously polymorph was on my shortlist backwards yeah. i'm surprised backwards didn't end up on either of our top five now backwards actually. isn't even on my shortlist that's, i do like that's backwards. another one people tend to but... like pitch as the best yeah um and parallel universe if only for tongue-tied at the beginning, cold open. Oh god! Full song and dance sequence. It's just out of nowhere, and it's which it's recently fabulous. my dad told me this yesterday was number seventeen in the charts. Yeah, Danny Dan Jules released it as a single. There it is again. Just, yeah. What the hell? Which goes to show the power of the fan base of the show. The power the, of the dwarf, or at least the fan base of uh, the people who like Death in Paradise as well. Who've gone all right? Yeah, <laughs> go on, Danny John Jules. Why not? I'll buy your single. We'll um, do it. We'll go for that. So, yeah. Uh, I think we should wrap up Red Dwarf there. Conclusion this week. There's some cracking old Red Dwarf. There's some yeah. cracking old Dwarf. Seasons 1 to 8 are on Netflix. I think... Do you know what? I'm going to try and get in touch with To Entertain and Dave and see if by the end of this series we can get a little competition going. Yeah, I mean... No nice. promises, but I'll try my best because... Yeah. I think we need to... I think we need to sing the praises of Dwarf a bit more. We do like a bit I'm dwarf. so glad it's back. It's back every Thursday on Dave, a week prior on UK TV Play. All you have to do is sign up. Enjoy your swine. They're not sponsored. But Boys like from the Dwarf. <laughs> the slime's coming home. <laughs> right. Let's cut to our favourite new item. Oh, yes. Our, uh, I'm probably right. Jingle for this section. I'm going to try the jingle for you. Ready? It's Chris and Matt to life on Doctor Who fans reluctantly answer Doctor Who questions. I'm going to try that. I'll do another Catch one. Catch you that, anyway. Um... <laughs> Hey, here we go. So these are these are banked from uh, older episodes. Uh, we got uh, we got an email from Dan Rawlings a while back. Hey, Dan we, Rawlings, you saucy mix. We promised we would come back to his Doctor Who questions, mm-hmm. so we did. Yes, and he's got a couple for us. Hit us, hit us, boy. Got, did he um, email them? These were these were via email. Big via dumb, email. Bigdumbcontact at gmail dot com. That's bigdumbcontact at gmail dot com. If you don't email us, we will kick a puppy. <clears throat> Yes, we will. You save a baby kitten from murder. No. Change the end Stop it. Stop it, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin, get out! And do more episodes where Mark Bernardin's on his own. You're not being on this one! They're really good. He interviewed Phil Lamar this week. That's a really good episode. Just good. Mark Bernardin and Phil Lamar. I'll give that a watch. Yeah. Phil Lamar's in, amazing, in, is in Spider-Man 2 in the train. But before I do... Yeah, sorry about that. I have to answer this question. <laughs> Tangents. I'm going to get you on topic if it's the last thing I do. But it's not my favourite type of chocolate, though. What has a hazelnut in every bite? Squirrel shit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Dan Rawlings asks... Hi, Dan. What could the BBC do to save Doctor Who? Let's face it, it's gone tits up. (laughs) Um... Uh... Kill it. Let it... I'm I'm gonna rest. And by, by, yeah, by rest, we don't mean a year where the same people are making it and yeah. there's just none on telly. Like, just a rest. Now, pre- we're saying this preemptively. Chris Chibnall's first series, two years from now, 
might be enough of a tone change Maybe. to make it feel refreshing. Hopefully. And that, that could save it. We, we like that. That'd I mean, Chris nice. Chavez has done some really good stuff. He's also done some not so good stuff. But yeah. he has run his own shows before, so we know how to do that. And also, it's all based on opinion. Maybe people don't think it needs saving, but... Uh, there are a lot of people out there yeah. who love it, to be fair. Yeah, mostly Tumblr users who really like Clara's dress. Hey, but let's not shit all over our target audience, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> We need... OMG, I might die. Class released to Snapchat. Listen, OMG, kill me now. We need... The that, feels. We need that tween and sixth form audience. No, we don't. We do. <laughs> no, we, we don't. We do need it. No, we don't. That's where, all the, that's where all the numbers are. I can tell from my statistics. That's where all the listeners are. Uh, I can't um, even. There you go. I there's cannot your, even. I can't there's your even. colloquialisms. So much squee. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, take a leaf out of the Red Dwarf book. Give it three or four years off, take some time to retool it, maybe look at the format and the tone, maybe not just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. I don't think it's got that choice, though, due no. to Top Gear and Bake Well, Off yeah, look at, look at everything that's happened in BBC. They're losing their mm. big properties, yeah. either by incompetence or just by being outbid for it, which is kind of the same thing. <laughs> um, the problem you've got with the BBC, and I say this as someone who's, who's worked for them, albeit in a freelance capacity, the opinions are ours, by the way. Yes, right these, now. these, these I'm not completely, those the completely our opinions. <laughs> um, I can't. I wouldn't force my opinions on anyone. I'm going to though. Um, <laughs> the problem you've got is is that when you put a creative person into a corporate structure, the only way that they can progress is upwards, and the only way you can up, progress up, up, upwards is a girl lickety split. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, the only way you can progress upwards in a corporate um, in a corporate system, and the NHS has the same problem, is you move upwards into management and stop making things. So, because I think so many people have been there for so long, they've got more management than they have people making television and writing things. And um, I know because I've worked with and I've seen the frustration that people have to, I worked for quite a while doing BBC Radio and I've seen the frustration firsthand and obviously I'm not going to name any names because those people's careers are their own careers but I've seen the stuff people have to deal with to get stuff made and how frustrating it can be to get stuff through and it's because all, everything's mired in management that's where mm. all the money's going yeah. it's not going towards new TV or new ideas or even refreshing old ideas and keeping things current Keeping things working smoothly. I mean, they've just let Stephen Moffat do what he wants, which apparently is nothing for the last year because there are no scripts. And I think, well, taking it away from him is the first step, which <laughs> they've done. But they need to do it sooner and not have a year off. A year off nowadays is a long time in television. You can't really get away with it anymore unless you're already an established name, which to be fair, Doctor Who is, but every moment it's not in the limelight is a moment that less people care about it. And when, you, when it's one of your biggest exports, you need to have it on all the time. You need to have it going overseas. Mm-hmm. So then they've shot themselves in the foot right there. So they need to get the production back on schedule. They need to get someone who can do things on a timetable and get things out on time. I realise I'm repeating myself with just synonyms here, but I'm just kind of getting <laughs> kind of wound up and I'm losing my ability to find the right words. Um, yeah. It needs a rest. Yes. Which I realise contradicts what I've just said about staying in the limelight. <clears throat> but at the moment, it's not doing well anyway with a lot of 
It's only in critical reaction. Um, although it does have a very vocal fan base, but you know, a lot of things that aren't very good have very vocal fan bases. It will defend it no matter what. It doesn't make it good. Mm. And if you want to get it to continue its mainstream appeal, you need to make it good. So it needs a rest, and then a relaunch. And then once it's relaunched, you have people in charge who can steer the ship and steer it on time, and keep delivering good Doctor Who on a regular basis, and not take a year out to do with two smaller, split up seasons across the year, and then only have a year where you've only got a special, and it's confusing. The viewers are dropping because people don't know when it's on. Mm. It changes time <laughs> slot week to week when it is on, and then it's on for six weeks, and then it's not on for three months, and then it's on for eight, and people don't know what's going on. So you need consistency. That's the biggest thing you need. That's my thoughts on Doctor Who. That will fix it. What about you, Christopher? Shit, can it and just repeat Star Trek Next Generation? Hey! So! <laughs> Dan Rollins <laughs> also asks... Hey, Dan. <laughs> on a possibly related note... All men's. Do you hope the Doctor's daughter, Jenny, will return? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> oh, there are no more Doctor Who questions. But we have just received an urgent email. <gasps> what the titty uh, Urgent email. Tip biscuits. Tip biscuits on a great big bag of nips. Uh, it's, it's actually an invitation. What? It's an invitation. Oh, my God. Yeah. From, for today. <gasps> what? September 19th. Huh? 5pm till 6pm. Oh, my God. It's 5pm in five minutes' time. From Ms. Selena Patrick. <gasps> she sounds like a person. I am Ms. Selena Patrick. Please, I have an important issue to discuss with you regarding my inheritance. Please, here is my address. And then an email address. <laughs> right. Um, oh, well, you, that was... You're gonna... You're gonna email her, right? Apparently, we have to do it in five minutes' time, and then we only have an hour. <sighs> our spam um, is getting lazier. That didn't even come to our spam filter. That's that went worrying. straight to our inbox. That's worrying. Oh, oh my god, man! Unless Selena Patrick is out there, in which case, uh, give us a ring. <laughs> Selena with a C, no less. So, Kelina. Kelina. I like that Kelina. Yeah. tequila, por favor. I don't know who Selena Patrick is, but she wants to discuss her inheritance. Well, while we make room in our <sighs> bank accounts... We better go, uh, we better go draft that email. You guys, get ready for next week. If you've got any stuff you want to talk to us about, any nerdy news, or geeky gossip, or shit that does not matter, bigdamncontact at gmail.com. If you can sum it up in 140 characters or less, good on you. Yeah. Hit us up on Twitter, bigdamncast by Jimmy. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you're feeling. Let us know what you want more of on the show. Let us know what you want less of on the show. Don't say Chris, although you're right. Aye! <laughs> and no dick pics. Definitely no dick pics. Before 10pm. Okay! <laughs> We'll see you later. Bye! Oh, the big dumb cat! <laughs> see, it's a cat, because cat's a character of Red Dwarf. It's a big dumb cat. I'm looking nice! <laughs> oh, it's cold outside. There's no, no kind of atmosphere. atmosphere. Copyrighted music. <laughs> <laughs>